Turn with me to Joshua chapter 4 where we left off the last time. Joshua chapter 4. We'll begin tonight with verse 12. And uh, remember from last week's study, they had just seen the miracle of the Jordan River being kept from flowing several miles upriver. And it was a remarkable miracle that they were able to cross that flooded Jordan River without having any water under the feet. In fact, it wasn't even muddy. It was dry land, just like it was when they crossed the Red Sea 40 years before. Only a few of them that were crossing this time were alive during the crossing of the first miracle of the parting of the waters. But this is a remarkable miracle nonetheless. Remember the priests carried the ark up to the edge of the flooding banks of the Jordan River and as soon as their feet entered into the waters, the water began to recede. And then the uh, priests, the Levites, carried the ark into the middle of the riverbed on dry ground and then the people followed them about a half a mile behind them and they all crossed over safely. Now, there are a lot of different estimates as to how many people would have been there. Uh, I'm going to throw out uh, an estimate of, I think, perhaps more likely because it seems to be in the middle of everybody else, around two million people. That's a lot of people nonetheless. And we're going to be told here in these few verses that we begin tonight's study with that the people from the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh also had determined that they would send their troops over to the western side of the Jordan River, even though they, those two and a half tribes, would be settling in the land on, <clears throat> on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And that land had already been conquered. The Israelites had defeated Og and uh, Sihon, the kings of Bashan and uh, Ammon, and they were able to take the, that land without difficulty. Great victories. And the people on the western side of the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, knew all about those victories. They knew all about the parting of the Red Sea. They knew all about the fact that Israel had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And they knew that they were going to come into the land. They were expecting it. And when Og and uh, Sihon had been defeated, it caused a great deal of, of fear among the Canaanites because they knew their time was up. But they had the Jordan River between them and the Israelites at that time. And so they felt perhaps that it wasn't going to be uh, anytime soon because they would have to figure out a way to cross that Jordan with so many people. Well, God figured that out for them, obviously. It was a great miracle. And that's what we looked at the last time. But now we're reading in verse 12 of chapter 4 where those half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribes of Gad and Reuben are going to uh, commit to their having committed to Moses and now to Joshua that they will send their men of war along with them. But there's only 40,000, it says, that were prepared for this. It tells us in verse 12 of chapter 4, And the men of Reuben, 
the men of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. So again, that's the number of warriors that came across the Jordan. Men who were older, children, women, all of the ones who were farmers that needed to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan to take care of all of those others who could not care for themselves remained on the eastern shores, but 40,000 of their soldiers. Some believe that that wasn't nearly as many of the soldiers that could have gone, but I'm not really sure that that's necessarily so. I think we'll find that there was a population, according to uh, the records and numbers, of about 140,000 total in those three tribes, or two and a half tribes. So it's likely that all of the available soldiers were committed and did go across the Jordan with the rest of the tribes. Now, Joshua here in the next few chap uh, verses is going to recap some of the things that had already taken place. And we'll read that in verse 14 and following where it says, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan resumed to their place, or returned to their place, and overflowed all its banks as before." Remember, it was springtime around our time of the Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate there, Passover. That was the time as we, we're going to see that as we move forward. But in that period of time, in that uh, uh, period of the year, rather, waters would be overflowing uh, the Jordan River, coming down from the mountains uh, around Mount Hermon above the Sea of Galilee, and it was a very, very difficult time in which people could very likely lose their lives because of the rushing water if they didn't ford it properly. Well, God took care of that problem for them. They didn't know that God was going to do that, but as soon as the priests set their feet into the water, that's what took place. A remarkable miracle again, and now the miracle is over and the waters have returned to their normal flood state. Now in verse 19 it says, The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So Jericho was a little bit inland away from the river, and uh, they camped just on the eastern border of the city of Jericho, and they were between the river Jordan and, or in the middle of, sandwiched between the River Jordan, and the city of Jericho. They named this place Gilgal, as we'll see later. Gilgal is basically translated rolling or wheel. And it's important, as we will see a little bit later on. But this particular place, known as Gilgal, is referenced in the Old Testament in many, many different places. It seems that, at least in the beginning, it became the headquarters of the 
people of Israel as they began to conquer the land. They oftentimes would come back to Gil Gilgal. And, and even after Joshua's day, in the period of the judges, Gilgal was a very important place. Up until the time of Samuel, the last of the judges, Samuel had a route that he followed. There were three particular locations where he set up his uh, areas of operation, and Gilgal was one of those three, as well as Shiloh and one other. But Gilgal is an important place, and it's here that, according to what we read last week, uh, Joshua had set up the uh, stones, the twelve stones that he had taken out of the river from the dry riverbed and placed those stones in a heap in that place known as Gilgal. And it says in verse 20, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. And then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers to, in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall tell your children and let them know, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So the fear of the Lord was instilled in them, a respect for the power and the mercy and the grace and the presence of God was very, very real in the hearts of the people. And the people surrounding them, the nations also, according to what has just been said, were also very much aware of what had just taken place. And we're going to see that that is the case as we read further on uh, in chapter 5. But in chapter 5, we have several different things that take place that have to be done before they begin to actually occupy the land. And they're very interesting events that are recorded here. And uh, it certainly is important for us to look at these in light of what we know with what God has done for us as believers in Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. The Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. It's also the Hebrew name for Joshua. And it is Jesus, our Savior. He is the one who is represented by Joshua, by the ark that they followed into the riverbed. Uh, the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat, is a type of Jesus Christ. And we'll see Jesus' typology throughout the book of Joshua, really, and as well as the other Old Testament scriptures. But Joshua is a very, very meaningful book for the purpose of revealing Christ in his work in us today. So it's very good for us to reflect on what took place in the lives of these people so long ago and realize that they're examples given to us so that we can know what God expects of us, what God is willing to do for us, what God has already done for us. And we will see that as we move forward. Gilgal is a place of remembrance. That's why the stones were set up. And that's what we've just looked at at the end of chapter 4. A place of remembrance where they can go back to that place and observe those stones and remember what God had done for them. 
And the question that comes to my mind when I read that is, do I have a place of remembrance in my own experience? And I certainly do, and several of them actually, but there are places in my walk at both the beginning of my walk with the Lord and throughout my time of these last several years, 40 plus years now walking with the Lord, and I have times of remembrance that I can reflect on where I can say, God was with me in this. God did this for me. I hope that is the case for you as well. That's exactly what it was for the people of Israel, and it should be so for us as well. So now in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see the things that are to be done first before they move on to conquer the land. Beginning in Gilgal, it's not only a place of remembrance, but it's a place of consecration or a place of renunciation of the flesh, for instance. And that's what's got to be dealt with first. But before we get to that, this is the situation that they now are enjoying because of what has just taken place. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 5, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. If they thought that they could defend themselves against the people of Israel any time before this, they had lost all hope. And that's exactly what had taken place all over the land of Canaan. On the western side of the Jordan, every tribe, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, they all were fearful. The Philistines, the occupants of Tyre and Sidon, every one of them feared what had just taken place. The fear of God had been in their hearts, and their hearts melted. Their spirits were no longer in them as strong as they had once been. I'm reminded of the story in Daniel when Belshazzar, had a great feast. And as he was feasting and enjoying the drunken party that he had established for several days, and they were using the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, suddenly there appeared on the wall some writing, a hand recording words upon the wall, and they were frightened. It tells us that the king shook violently. He had no spirit in him. That's what I believe was taking place in the hearts of all the Canaanites as well. It says in verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now we'll find out a little bit more about that as we move forward. But I'd like to tell you something about this particular event. It is required of the Jews to perform circumcision upon their newborn sons. And it was a ritual that had begun with Abraham before the Jews even came into existence. God had said to Abraham, I want all of your descendants to follow this ritual command to circumcise your children to identify as the people of God. Moses, when he went into Egypt, or came from Egypt, rather, into the land of Midian in hiding, he was in that land for about 40 years until the age of 80. 
and he was not circumcised. He was raised in a, an Egyptian home, not a Jewish home, and he was never circumcised until the age of 40. Before he went into the land, the Lord saw to it that if he was going to deliver his people, the people of Israel, that Moses had to comply with the command that God gave to Abraham, and he was circumcised. He entered into Egypt, delivered the people, and they came across the Red Sea. They came to the Sinai mountain where they received the law, and the command of the law continued with regard to all of the things that he had shown them in that holy mountain. Circumcision was not given to Moses to give to the people. It had already been given to the people. However, not all of the people continued with that particular procedure, as we'll find out here momentarily. It says again, Joshua made flint knives in verse 3. And by the way, flint is found in limestone typically, and it's a very, very common uh, rock, and it's very easy to form into a, a knife, albeit, uh, although it's sharp, it's brittle, but it would be what they used to circumcise the males, all of them, who had not been circumcised. And again, there were those who crossed over the Red Sea who were young, under the age of 20, who were able to enter into the land of Canaan, now with Joshua in the area next to Jericho at Gilgal, they had been circumcised, but their children had been not, as we see here in the following verses. Verse 4 again, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out from Egypt had not been circumcised. They, for one reason or another, just simply did not follow the command of God with regard to this particular requirement to identify as the people of God. So now they find themselves in a very interesting place. They've just crossed over the river Jordan. They're ready to go to battle to defeat the armies of the Canaanites. But the very first thing that they do is they receive this act of circumcision. It takes a while to heal from that. It's not something that could easily be done uh, and this go to war afterward. I'm reminded of another story in the book of Genesis where that uh, appears to be very much the case. Remember when Jacob crossed over from Padan Aram on his way back to the land of Canaan. He came into a place called Shechem. And the place was actually a city known by that name, but it was under the rulership of a man named Shechem. Well, they got together in that land with the people of Shechem, and one of Shechem's sons wanted to marry a daughter of Jacob. Her name was Dinah. But before he got approval from the people of Israel, he raped Dinah. And as a result of his having raped Dinah, the children of Israel were infuriated. And they came to Shechem and demanded that if 
they were to allow any intermarriage between Shechem's people and the people of Israel, that all of Shechem's people had to be circumcised, the males. And so they agreed to it. And so they were in that process, in that particular city, every one of the males of the city of Shechem were circumcised. But that was a deceitful act, and it proved out to be very, very wrong for them to have done what they do next, because Levi and his brother uh, Reuben decide to go into the city of Shechem while all the men were still very much in pain from the surgery, and they completely destroyed every male in the city of Shechem. It terrified Jacob because of what they did. But that just proves how difficult it would be for the army of Israel to go ahead and attempt any conquest of any territory in that condition. They just weren't able to. So God did something very, very unique. He made it so that they couldn't do anything yet. But they were expecting that that's what they were going to be able to do. So what is the reason for God's having done so? It was to consecrate them, to cut away the flesh. That was a very, very important aspect of what God intended for his people. Circumcision, even in the Old Testament, according to the book of Deuteronomy, was a picture. It was a picture of the circumcision of the heart. It was a physical activity, but it was a physical activity that pointed to a spiritual reality. Unfortunately, the Jews, over time, obeyed the letter of the law, but they didn't understand the spirit of the law. Until the New Testament, when Saul comes along as a Jew and explains to the Christians in his day and to us that that's exactly what was intended by this act of circumcision. It was an act of consecration for all the males to be circumcised so that they could commit to obeying the commands of God. And Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that that command was indeed something that we as believers have actually performed in a sense, not physically, but spiritually. Colossians chapter 2, and I'll just read it. It's one short verse I'll read. It's Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, In him, Christ Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He tells us elsewhere in Romans that it is a circumcision of the heart, and that's exactly what Moses also indicated in the book of Deuteronomy. So circumcision is a spiritual activity that we have performed, if you will, all of us. We're all circumcised in the heart. It's a part of what God has done to identify with himself. There are many ways that we can identify and have identified with Christ. We've identified through this spiritual circumcision that we've just described. We've identified through the, uh, the baptism in water. As we are baptized in water, we're buried with Christ and we're raised up with Christ in resurrection. We're identifying with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a filling of the Holy Spirit that takes place after our salvation, not 
necessarily at the time of our salvation, but a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit we're identified with the Spirit of God in His baptizing us into His church. So circumcision is a very important aspect of that consecration, that renunciation of the flesh. And they had to do that before they could move forward. And I'm reminded, you know, as, as difficult as it may be to understand why God would have done this, He simply says this, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're beyond your finding out. Sometimes God does things in ways that we don't necessarily understand, that we certainly don't expect. But that's because He chooses to do these things for a purpose. He's got a plan. Sometimes we may not understand. Sometimes we may not like it. Sometimes it may be difficult. Oftentimes it's great blessing. But it's always His way. I'd rather God does His way than I do my way. Because I don't want my way to interfere with His way. And I hope that that's the case with you all. That is the case with the people of Israel. They're doing things His way. They've crossed over this Jordan. They're following the command that is given to them by their leader, Joshua, who is our leader, Yeshua, in type. They all came out. They all were circumcised. And again, in verse 6, it continues to talk about the reason for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They were disobedient. They did not believe the Lord. They rebelled against Him. And God judged them. That first generation was completely destroyed. I would like to take you to the book of Psalms to reiterate what has been just spoken here in Joshua chapter 5. Sir, turn with me to Psalm 95 and read with me from verse 6 on to the end of the chapter. Psalm 95, beginning with verse 6. It's a call to worship and a call to obedience. And he says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation. And I said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Now in the New Testament, we have certainly had that great privilege of entering into the true rest of God. It's a rest that is a spiritual rest. We've entered into our Canaan. It's a place where there are struggles. It's a place where there are difficulties. It's a place where there is an obstacle from time to time. Difficulties, trials, all kinds of things that we have to endure in this land of Canaan that we are now walking through. But we're just pilgrims passing through this land. We have a home, and our home that we have is the New Jerusalem. It's a city that God is the builder of. Just like Abraham, 
He sought a city whose builder and maker is God, and so that it is with us. And that is the rest that we have in the assurance that we have entered this land and we follow Christ, our Lord. Everywhere He goes, we go. Everything that He tells us to do, we do. We have renounced the flesh. We have consecrated ourselves unto Him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have been given the seal of promise and we are in the right place. We're so, so very grateful that the Lord has given us this wonderful opportunity to worship Him as He has allowed us to in spirit and in truth. Come, let us worship and bow down, the psalmist said. Let us rejoice in the Lord our God, our Maker, for He is God and there is no other. Verse 7 continues in Joshua chapter 5 and he says, Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised in the way. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. They couldn't go anywhere. They just stayed in their camp. Now, keep in mind that as we read earlier in verse 19 of chapter 4, that it was on the tenth day of the first month that these things took place. They were circumcised on that tenth day, and they rested in that period of time until the fourteenth day of the month. You may already have recognized that this particular time, and I mentioned it really already, I kind of opened it up for you so that you should be aware, this is a time of their Passover. It is their first month, the month Nisan, or Abib. It is the month where they were to, on the tenth of the month, take a lamb, bring that lamb into their homes, and observe and also to examine that lamb, to keep him basically as a pet, a yearling, a very young animal, and in their house he would be examined to see if there was any flaw, any imperfection, anything that would result in his being unacceptable to the Lord because he was going to be offered up as an offering on the 14th day of the month. That's the day of Passover. Passover was observed on the night of Passover while they were still in Egypt. It predates the law. It was given to the people as a picture of salvation, that God would pass over them as he judged the people in the land of Egypt. That resulted in their being able to remove themselves from the land of Egypt, no longer slaves, entering into the promised land now 40 years later. But there was only one other time in which they had observed this Passover. Immediately after the law was given at Mount Sinai, a year or possibly might have been two years after the original Passover time, they did celebrate the Passover in the wilderness just one time. And all of the other years, they neglected to serve the Lord in observation of this feast that was required by the Lord but it was also given in the book of Leviticus that it wouldn't be until they actually entered into the land that that feast and all of the other six other feasts that were associated with the 
work of God in his people, those seven feasts would be observed once they arrived in the land. So it's not like they were neglecting and sinning against their God. It was only because God had only arranged for them to observe it once they got into the land. But now it is a remembrance of time that they need to recall what God has done for them. And it's done at Gilgal. So again, Gilgal is a center of place of worship where they come and worship the Lord in the offering up of this sacrifice. It's a place of redemption. It's a place of remembrance. It's a place of reconciliation with their God. So it says again, in verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Remember we had said Gilgal means literally a rolling or a wheel. He has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. They are no longer to be seen as slaves of Egypt or to be known as slaves of Egypt. They are to be known as the people who conquer the land of Canaan. And this is a time of great celebration, a great time of rejoicing. Verse 10 says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. I'm reminded in Psalm 23 where David says, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. They're right outside Jericho. The people in Jericho can probably see what's going on in Gilgal as the people sacrifice their lambs, offer up the lambs, and participate in this Passover celebration for the first time in over 38 years. What a remarkable thing this is. It says in verse 11, And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. So listen what's going on. Not only have they done the rite of circumcision, not only have they performed this feast of Passover for the first time as they've entered into the land, now that they're in the land, they've eaten for the first time food that God did not provide them from heaven. Remember, while they were in the wilderness, they were given manna six days out of seven. And every one of those six days, they were to gather the manna, and that was their food. On the sixth day, they always gathered twice the normal amount so that they have enough for the Sunday, the day, or rather for the Sabbath, rather, because on the Sabbath, they would not be able to gather the manna. But now that they've entered the land, take note again what they're doing. They began to eat the fruit of the land, parched grain, and had unleavened bread from the grain on that very same day after the Passover. Then notice what it says in verse 12. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. The very next day, they saw nothing on the ground for the first time. In many of their lives, it was for the first time ever. Only a handful of people would have known what had taken place before they started receiving the gift of God from heaven. But the manna came to an end. Remember, we had already talked about the last time, the fact that they were not any longer being led by the pillar of cloud by day or the fire by night. That had stopped 
when they crossed the Jordan. They had the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat. They had Joshua leading them. All of these are types of Jesus Christ at work in us, in our lives, preparing us for and providing for us in every detail of our lives. My God shall supply all your need, Paul tells us, according to his riches in glory. He loves to give good gifts unto his children. He gives exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Our God is a gracious God, a merciful God, and he provides every need that you have and that I have. What a wonderful God we serve. And he has given us peace that passes all understanding and joy that is a joy that is unspeakable joy. He has given many, a multitude of blessings to us in heavenly places and in this world as we know it. What a remarkable thing that God has done for his people. And it's again pictured in this wonderful way. They could not begin to conquer the land until they were consecrated unto the Lord. It was a place where they would remember that God had provided, a place where they were consecrated unto the Lord for service to their king, where they renounced the flesh, and there was a renewal of the people's worship of God in the celebration of the Passover. All things are made new. This is wonderful. This is God. This is what he has done for them. It is what he has done for us. Now, the end of chapter 5 prepares us for the conquest. And Joshua has led the people across the Jordan. They have come to that place where they see him as Moses' replacement, the one who would lead them in the conquering of the land. However, Remember, Joshua had to be encouraged by the Lord many times, as we saw in the beginning of our reading of the book of Joshua, where God said to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage. Now we come to a place where he will have no doubt whatsoever, because what was missing so far was the promise that was given to Moses that when God brought them into the land that he would lead them. Now Joshua is about to find out who he is in a very personal way. And we'll close the chapter with these wonderful words that are given here. Verse 13, it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, apparently by himself, he looked, and behold, a man stood up opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He wanted to know, Are you an enemy or you are on our side? And I love the answer that's given. I hope you are seeing this when you read it. The answer is given in verse 14. So he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I'm not on your side. I'm not on your enemy's side. I am the commander or the captain, if you will, of the Lord's host. The angels are the Lord's host. They follow the captain. This is Christ Jesus. He has appeared as a theophany to Joshua. And he has spoken just as with Moses, 
he now speaks with Joshua. And we'll see the connection as we read to the end of the chapter. It says, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. You don't worship an angel. We know that for a fact. When John bowed before the angel in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, the angel said, don't do that. I'm like one of you. You are to worship God and God alone. We're told that throughout the scripture. There was none who should accept worship other than the Lord God Almighty. Joshua worshipped this one standing before him. And then it says, And he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? He recognizes who this is. The Lord of God, uh, of hosts. Adonai. And then in verse 15, we're told, Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Where have you heard that before? Only once. It was when Moses saw a bush that was burning but not getting consumed. And he went to find out what the cause of this great mystery was. And as he approached that burning bush, he heard the voice of the Lord, Take off the shoes from off your feet, Moses, for you are standing on holy ground. This is the same one who spoke to Moses in that burning bush. Take off your shoes, Joshua. The place where you stand is holy. When we follow Jesus, do you understand, do you realize the impact of what has been said here as it applies to us today? Wherever we walk, we are walking on holy ground. God's given us this great and wonderful blessing. He goes before us. He shines His light, lighting our path. He walks beside us in the cool of the day. He goes behind us as our rear guard. He covers us in the shadow of His wings. He places us upon the rock, which is Christ, that sure foundation. We have been hedged about in the presence of Almighty God in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our reason for wanting every day to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 95, so it is that we should be also saying, come, let us worship and bow down before the Lord our Maker. God is good. God is here. And He has never left us. He never will. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He walks with us. He stays beside us and continues to bless us with multiple blessings in heavenly places because it's His desire to do so. What a wonderful heritage we have. We have our own Gilgal, if you will, a place of remembrance, a place of renunciation of our flesh, a place of consecration, a place of renewal, a place of rest. May God richly bless you, my beloved, in the name of Jesus as you continue to think on these things. Grace and peace.